0: If you would stand, we're in 1 Samuel 25, and a long passage, so we're going to read portions of it, but not all of it. Famous passage, David, Abigail, Nabal, one you may have heard before. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 men remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail... "'Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers "'out of the wilderness to greet our master, "'and he railed at them. "'Yet the men were very good to us, "'and we suffered no harm, "'and we did not miss anything "'when we were in the fields, "'as long as we went with them. "'They were a wall to us both by night and by day, "'all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. "'Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, "'for harm is determined against our master "'and against all this house.' And he is such a worthless man, one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste. We'll jump to verse 21. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belongs to him. And we'll close with verses 32 and 33. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. You may be seated. Many of us could use a bit more humility. A bit more humility. Back many years ago, Hall of Fame baseball player, Ralph Kiner, for the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates, he led the whole major leagues in home runs that year. Come the end of the year, he went to his general manager, Branch Rickey, and said, could I have a raise? General manager said, no. He said, why not? I hit 37 home runs. I led the league. I was the best home run hitter. General manager said, what place did we finish? He said, <clears throat> uh, last. said, there you have it. We could come in last without you. A pastor going to preach on humility said, I've got this great sermon on humility. I'm just waiting for more people to come so they can hear it. But then there, are on the flip side, those who actually live and breathe and aspire to humility. Alex Haley, the author of the famous series Roots, many years ago, he had a picture in his office of a turtle on a fence post. And he said, whenever I'm tempted to feel full of myself in what I've done, I look at that picture of the turtle and I say, that turtle didn't get there by himself. And finally, Booker T. Washington, famous African-American educator in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he was appointed to lead the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. And one day, uh, this, this uh, polished uh, uh, leader of the institute happened to be walking down the street of the, of the city, and a wealthy white woman came up to him and not knowing who he was, offered him a few dollars to come and chop wood for her. He obliged. He went home with her, chopped, split the wood, gathered it up, brought it in to her, laid it out for her, said thank you. Uh, she paid him. He laughed. Till a woman, a friend of this lady, said, do you know who that was? That was Booker T. Washington. What were you doing treating him like that? She was mighty embarrassed, She hurriedly went over to the school a few days later and apologized profusely. But Booker T. Washington, in his humility, simply said, It's okay. I like a little manual labor, and I like to do a favor for my friends. And shook her hand and thanked her. Pictures of humility. And our our passage this morning is going to have a lot to say about humility, And about contrasting one person who was completely committed to himself and to his wealth and to his things and holds on to that commitment till death do us part versus another one who kind of wavers in his commitment. We'll see him sin, we'll see him change about his view on some things, but his commitment to someone will not change. And the writer of 1 Samuel 25 gives us a nice, really a self-contained short story that we could see in an English lit class. And that's kind of how we're going to look at it. If you have in your bulletin, you have the notes. You'll see we just laid this out. Nice parts to a short story is how we're going to see what God would have us here. So we've got the setting, we've got plot, we've got characters, and we start off, the setting begins in verse 1 with the death of a leader, the death of Samuel, one verse. All we get is one verse for the death of Samuel. Samuel, who led, judged Israel for decades. Samuel, two books in the Bible named after him. Samuel crowns the first two kings of Israel, one verse. Why? Why? We're left with questions, but we can surely say that God in the end, whether it's in this one chapter, whether it's all of Samuel, whether it's the whole Bible, the Bible is really more a picture of God and his work, and in this case, he's bringing about his king, who would point us later to Jesus. God is not about just one man, and neither should we be at this get-together, at this morning, at this memorial, left with more questions. Do you think David came? Did, did Saul come? Did they bump into each other? Did Saul pretend like everything was okay? To save political face, we don't know. But we do know immediately after his death, David heads off to the wilderness, maybe figuring if it's, up to, if it's to be, it's up to me. I've got to take care of myself. Samuel's gone. I'm on my own my life is threatened. Our plot develops and we get to see more characters. First, we meet Saul. And you say, whoops, wait, Saul's not in here. You're right. He's not mentioned directly by name. But there are two references that point us back to realize Saul's presence is felt throughout David's life. And that's simply this, the mention of the place called Maon. Maon was where just several chapters earlier, Saul had almost caught David, almost caught him, captured him, killed him at Maon. And then there's a mention of Carmel. Carmel was where Saul had erected a monument for himself. So we're seeing his effect here. Not to mention in the previous chapter, just before this one, it had basically said that Saul had acted foolishly. He had been foolish in the way that he had been treating David. And that foolish leads us right into the next character we see. The next character, he's wealthy. After all, that's what marks him. We don't even get his name first. We just get his stuff, his goats, his sheep, his stuff, because that's who he is. Then we get his name. If you were a Hebrew reading this and you get to his name, you would have chuckled, you would have snickered, that, that's his name, really? It's like Don and I used to sit around back before we had children and we'd have a game, we'd say, what would be a really bad name for one of our children? And uh, no offense, the Timothy Keller, Tim Brown, other Tims and Timothys out there, we couldn't do a Timothy. We said, he would be ridiculed for life. Hey, there's Timmy Timberlake. And made fun of, so we said we couldn't do that name. But this name they chose, Nabal, was worse than that. Down in Louisiana, in Cajun country, this would have been like Boudreaux and Thibodeau. Those were the names of the fools. If you were going to tell a joke in Cajun country, it was about Boudreaux and Thibodeau, and they always played the fool. That's this guy's name, Nabal, fool. Mom, dad, what were you thinking when you named your son Fool? And he lives up to it. We're going to see that happen in the story. But right after that name, we get to Abigail. Abigail, contrasted to her husband, Nabal, her name precedes her description because it's full of character. Her name is valued. My father's joy. She is both beautiful and she's intelligent or wise. She will play the part of a rescuer to come for David. And the final comment in that verse contrasts again her being beautiful and wise with her husband being mean in in his dealings. And that transpires in the next verse. The plot goes on, and David David is basically like uh, playing the part of Robin Hood and his merry band, because he's out in the wilderness, and he's we're going to see in later chapters, raiding the bad guys, but protecting the others. And in this case, he's protected Nabal, his shepherds, his sheep, his stuff. In its shearing season, shearing season is an opportunity for Nabal to increase his already great wealth. David humbles himself and reaches out and says. We looked after you. We're needy. Would you return the favor and provide something in return for us? Nabal responds in in good Hebrew hospitality. Sure, what's mine is yours. Come and get it. No, far from it. He says, my bread, my water, my meat, my shears, I did this, my, my, my my stuff. And who is David? A little runaway. A little wimpy runaway from his master. So Nabal plays the part of the ultimate, entitled bleepity bleep. You could fill in the blank. That's who he is being. Feel that anger that David would have to this guy. Now Proverbs 19.11 says... It's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. David could overlook the offense. Well, the Proverbs aren't written yet. So David hears the news. His response is immediate. Get my sword, get your sword, and with our swords, we're going to hack them to pieces. Three mentions of sword. Three, number of completeness. There is going to be complete destruction. Again, you can feel the righteous anger against this guy. If we don't feel it, we need to experience the times where we uh, uh, live in that. It could be a mom with a child. Mother makes that child three meals, gets him to school, gets him home from school, gets him to practice, home from practice, and even to a movie with some friends. They're home that evening. Billy, would you mind taking out the garbage while I help your little sister with her homework? Huh. None of my friends have chores like this. And mom, by the way, uh, could you try some new stuff for dinner? My stuff's been a little bit lame. Can you maybe look some stuff on Pinterest or something and try something new, mom? Come on, can you get with it? Or the single parent... Employee, busting your tail for your boss. No raises, but you keep getting more and more stuff to do. He's getting richer. You're barely making ends meet week to week, month to month. But your coworker with the little short skirt, she keeps getting promotions. Feel the anger to that boss. Or the college student on the group project. You've done the intro, you've done the write-up, you've done the conclusion, and put the presentation together. Most of the research, too. But John gets all the credit because he's the group leader. He had not done much of anything to yell at you about the deadlines. So again, there are times where we feel this anger, where we have been wronged. What will we do? David did all that service for this guy, He got nothing in return. Well, actually, he did. He got the demeaning insults. Does Nabal realize who it is he's talking to? Yeah, he does. He does. But he's a fool. In a fool, but not the type that we typically picture, if you're like me, I would picture a fool normally as, to me, the the character that comes to mind is the old Bugs Bunny cartoons, that funny-looking guy who says, um, which way did he go? Which way did he go, George? I'm going to find him and love him and hug him and squeeze him. Ignorant and searching and can't find whatever it was he was looking for. Or the Far Side comic, where the, where the little boy is pushing as hard as he can on the door, and it's not moving because up above it, it says pull. Okay? That's, that's what I would have pictured as a fool. Just ignorant doesn't know what's going on. That is not the biblical fool. It's much, much worse than that. If we have the humility to say, I don't know the answer, we're likely not a fool. The biblical fool, they know everything. They have it all figured out, and you're the one who's stupid. In fact, the Hebrew word for fool is based on root word collapse, Collapse, which is a similar root word to corpse, they are like a hot balloon inflated that's gonna deflate into a worthless corpse. That is Nabal. All that to say, he deserves this, right? David's gonna take care of the vengeance, he's breathing out fire and oaths, and he's gonna get him, except for a little wrinkle. There's one other little humble character in the passage that we passed over. The servant. The servant who was there, who heard the dialogue with Nabal and David's men. Little insignificant character, but does the little bit that he can, and he alerts Abigail. He tells Abigail, in a sense, without his part, everything would have been a disaster. But he did his part. Just like in the book of Acts. Paul is in prison and somebody hears there's going to be an ambush. They're going to take Paul and he's going to get ambushed on the way. This man goes to Paul, does the little he can, reports to Paul. He's given an opportunity to go to tell the leaders. Paul is rescued for a season to continue preaching the gospel because of the little part this guy did to rescue rescue Paul. So, we may think, I'm just a small player, I'm just a bench warmer, I just have a very simple blue collar job, meaningless life, not much to do. But no, like this little humble servant, we could be the best bench warmer, the best friend, the best blue collar worker, and you can make a difference. But maybe you don't really make a difference. It still matters in God's eyes to be faithful in the little or faithful in much. And we see that in this servant. So she she alerts or he alerts Abigail. Abigail immediately acts. We see that with her multiple times in the passage. Immediately goes. She gets stuff together to go and give David to seek to appease him. On the way, the way it's described, it seems as if she may have been up on a hill with a vantage point coming down to meet David before uh, he sees her. It's possible she hears him breathing out these murderous threats. But she humbles herself. She's brave. She accepts the fault. She repents on her husband's behalf. So here is this beautiful woman doing a beautiful thing, David meets her. David, in a sense, is arrested, in a sense. I'll put down my soul, my sword, because of her beauty, because of her grace, because of her humility. In this, this picture of beauty think about this for a minute. David, his initial intro to us many chapters ago, was essentially one of beauty. He's ruddy and handsome. Abigail, first introduction beautiful. In Christian circles, the whole topic of, be- topic of beauty and aesthetics is-, is often one that we put aside. A-, a-, a good reason to be wary of it is we are, need to be careful about lust and idolatry. But on the flip side, we need to realize, as Matt Capps writes, Beauty is an act of God's self-revealing love. And the the, the fundamental assertion concerning beauty and aesthetics is that God alone is the source and the substance of true beauty. We're, We're made to be aesthetic creatures to appreciate beauty. So God has given us the capacity to enjoy and cultivate beautiful things. Our God is a God who makes everything good, everything glorious, whether we see it or not. He does it for his pleasure and for ours. There's, there's the lily of the valley that God makes that we might not ever see because it grows and it withers in the season before somebody even sees it. Or on a high mountain peak, early spring, a waterfall comes out of the snowmelt. We might not ever see it. It gives God pleasure to make beautiful things just as it does to give him pleasure to make the beautiful things that we do see because it points us back to him when we realize he is the source. He is the one who gives us everything good and glorious, and we can live in that and give him thanks. So this this piece of beauty here is not something that we want to overlook. In this dialogue, with Abigail and David. We want to think about this. Can we be totally committed to a wrong path? Usually commitment's a good thing. Usually commitment's a good thing. But can we be totally committed for bad reason? David was so committed that he had given an oath that these men were going to die. And we've seen many oaths in this book, and many of them not good. David swore these guys are going to die. Now please, please get this point. With David, because I want us to see this. With David, we've got some bookends here. You've got David, chapters earlier that that Eric preached on, where he had an opportunity to kill Saul. Easy. It's like handed to him. But he doesn't do it. I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. Doesn't do it. Chapters later, in 2 Samuel, David is having to flee from his own son Absalom. And as he's suffering the pain of his own son in rebellion against him and having to leave his kingdom, there's this little jerk, Shimmy, a guy named Shimmy, up on a hill throwing rocks at David, the king insulting him as he's leaving, adding insult to injury. David could have taken his sword out and whacked the guy's head off or had his men do it, but he didn't do it. In humility, maybe the Lord is humbling me through this guy. So you've got these bookends where David, humble, doesn't take vengeance into his hands. But yet we find right here, what's he doing? Vengeance in my hands. What's going on? Years back, man who was discipling me many years ago, he said this to the group of us. He said, brothers, I could fall prey to any sin. There's no sin I couldn't do if I fall in weakness. His point being, don't be proud, don't think you've got it all together and you don't struggle. Guard your heart, guard your heart, Guard your heart. So here's David in weakness. For some reason, he's about to blow it. He's about to take vengeance in his own hands, something that would have been a bad mark on him and the kingship. But Abigail, because of God's grace, because of God's restraining sovereign mercy, stands in the place in a rebuke A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows on the back of a fool. So Abigail points out to him, this is not the way a king should act. David, you've been in the wilderness and you've been in the wilderness not just to be trained so that you can be the best uh, uh, warrior who just comes out and kills everyone. You're in that wilderness where you're to seek, to be still, still, grow strong and wait upon the Lord. Fortunately, David is a good listener. David's a good listener. And we essentially hit the climax of the story there in his response in verse 32 and 33 to Abigail. And what's going on there? It's said of David in the scripture that he is blameless, but he's not sinless. What's the difference? What is blameless? Now, so here's, here's my illustration that may or may not work. If you... It's not working. So let's try this. Whoops. If you see this uh, glass right here, this is pretty clear, okay? This is like a sinless person, no sin whatsoever. That's Jesus, okay? But it also is like a blameless person, okay? A blameless person... What the sin is up, I mean, there's no sin evident, okay? Because once the sin is evident and it's shook up, okay, what was supposed to happen was the sin, the crud, was only supposed to be down here. This is my daughter's um, um, chicken manure. It was supposed to sit down here until I shook it up. So now pretend it's shook up and now it's messy, okay? That's sin. So the blameless person, when the sin bubbles up, They deal with it. As soon as they see the sin, they repent, they confess, they deal with it. So the crud is now clear again. It's not saying that they're sinless because there's always the sin there on the bottom. Okay? Always the sin there on the bottom. And uh, I hope I'm not in trouble with my wife now that I've used those good jars. If you ever come over to our house, don't drink from the uh, whatever jar there, but we'll get it clean. But here's the point with David, okay? He's confronted with the sin, he deals with it. He's blameless. Once the sin is shown to him, he repents and deals with it. He's soft, the word of God. So David's confession, the beautiful thing, it's quick, it's done. He doesn't get defensive and say, well, Nabal deserved it anyway. He's quite the fool, and you would know that, Abigail, by living with him, and he did it to me first. None of that. It's like G.K. Chesterton, famous author years back, asked, expecting an eloquent answer, Mr. Chesterton, what's the problem with the world? He said, I am. That's it. I am. My sin. I can deal with my sin. I can repent of it. I can't fix yours. You deal with that before the Lord. I need to be repenting of mine, and be humble about that. So David is humble, and he's quick to repent, and he realizes in this, and what he said, he realizes this is God's restraining hand, his sovereignty over me. I will submit to it. Now, in fairness, any story, I said this is a, uh, a short story, there's the falling action. We hit the high point in verses 32 and 33, And what goes on after this is kind of the falling action. It's not the main thing. But in fairness, we'll talk about it briefly in case somebody wants to uh, get on me afterwards. Well, you didn't talk about this, okay? There's, Nabal dies, right? Nabal dies having not changed. Einstein said insanity, or in this case, foolishness, is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. Nabal's a fool, never changes, dies in that, sadly. When he dies, Abigail is free. Abigail is free, no longer bound in marriage to him. So some would say, ah, look, she's now free from this sin and this baggage, free to come in marriage to the king. To the king. What a great picture of Coming to Christ. And that goes somewhat, okay? Yeah, there's a little bit of that. But then if we go too far with that, many of you would say, yeah, but, yeah, but what? David's got a bunch of wives, okay? So can we just not worry about that part for this passage to get back to the main thing? No. So, simple point, okay? So we can major on the majors, minor, minor. God at times. He allows things that he does not approve of. Allow, approve, different. Okay, Old Testament, yes. There were multiple marriages. God will deal with that more completely in the New Testament, say in Ephesians, where we get the restored picture, one man, one woman, godly marriage, like it was in the beginning. Okay, does not mean that some of the junk that came along the way was stuff that God approved of. We see that with Jesus too. He says, it was because of the hardness of your hearts that I allowed for that divorce. But now, let's return to the truth in the beginning. So Jesus said the same kind of thing. So with this, allow and approve are not the same thing. So now, let's come back to keep, as we close, the main thing, the main thing. Again, this passage is more about God, more about his plans, more about him bringing about a king who would then rule his people, who will then point to the ultimate king in Christ. But is there application for us? Is there application for us in what we saw with David? How do you, how do I respond to God's restraining providence when we're in the middle of something, a friend comes a parent comes, a spouse comes, a child comes. I have to confess this week, a child pointed out to me my sin and I had to repent of that and think, man, I'm a, I'm a pastor and I'm dealing with these silly sins. Yeah, there you go. You get a I'm a pastor so you can see I have much, much sin and it's it gets hard to repent, doesn't it? It's like you would think that would get easier, but we've all got to grow there. And it takes humility, and I saw that this week for sure. So when God sticks that rebuke, that correction, how do you respond? Are you quick to repent and deal with it like David did? Or are you angered that somebody's holding me back? Do you strain against the reins? God let me free. Or do we rest and trust and show humility? Abraham Lincoln once got caught up in a situation where he was trying to please a politician. He issues a command to transfer certain regiments. Edwin Stanton, his secretary of war, (laughs) said, I'm not doing it. Lincoln's a fool, not doing it. That message is transferred to Abraham Lincoln. He says, well, you know what? Edwin Stanton, he's usually right. And if he's saying I'm being foolish or acting the fool, I probably am. Meets with Stanton, they talk about it. And Lincoln says, yep, he was right. My decision was wrong. This great man, humble enough to receive that type of correction and to repent and to change from it. So the good news for us, the good news for us is we're called to humble repentance is that the quicker we are to repent, the, all the more, not because of how quick we are, but we have a Christ because he suffered, because he was ridiculed, because he was mocked by fools even more than Nabal, and he could have called down a legion of angels with swords and done away with the fools mocking him on the cross, but he did not so that he could be quicker to forgive us than we are even to repent. Let us pray. Our Father, our God, our Savior, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God who takes your people and doesn't leave them as we are, but calls us into greater and greater sanctification, greater and greater growth in you, and our eyes are not closed. We realize that this is hard. It's no fun at times when it's hard and when our pride is stirred up in us as was with me this week but you are a god who is sovereign and who will work out all to your good for your pleasure and you've been pleased to involve us in that so lord we do ask amidst that that dynamic of your sovereignty and our responsibility may you grant that redeemer That our people here would be quick, quick to repent, quick to ask forgiveness, quick to be humble. And Lord, we pray for any here who may not have humbled themselves for that first time to say, Lord Jesus, indeed you are Lord. Indeed you are in control. And indeed I must submit to you and you must be my Savior, because I have played the fool like Nabal. And without you, my heart will be hard until death. Lord, save me. In either case, Lord, you are good, and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.